Welcome to On The Block with Richard Stone. Richard is a 40-something construction company owner based in the UK. His passions are technology, business automation, customer experience, and helping other small business owners using his own valuable life and business experience. This podcast will be a mixture of solo spots, casual conversation, as well as inspirational key people of influence from their respective fields. Make yourself comfortable and enjoy listening. Here is your host, Richard Stone. Right, so this evening we're talking to Stuart Davidson from QS Consult about all things QS in, cash flow and general construction industry matters. But given that the current date stamp is the 3rd of April, it wouldn't really be right if we didn't probably mention the C word. So it's not the C four letter word that starts with Tuesday, but it's the word COVID, but we'll come to that later on. So first and foremost, let's have a little chat about all things Stuart. We've got some questions to sort of go through. So, so what did you want to do and what was your what was your job that you kind of thought about as a child you might want to sort of do? Oh, as a child, I think lots of different things, really. I suppose the normal things for a child. In fact, Interestingly, I was a bit of a strange child because I wanted to be a metallurgist. That was right, a metallurgist. Oh, wow. That's what I okay. wanted to be, which was a bit weird. I don't know where I got that from, but uh, so there's a strange one for you. You probably won't that's, ever get that again. That's, yeah, it's <laughs> not what I've had so far. So I'll, um, I'll have to make a note yeah. of that. So I've, I can't leave that there. I've got to ask. I don't normally, but so what does a meta, metallurgist do? Right, so a metallurgist is somebody who works out. So if you're using steel, for example, in a, in a project, a yep. metallurgist would know what the content of that steel was for different grades of steel, so for different tensile strengths, etc. cetera. Right, okay. so if you wanted to build a bridge, you'd want a certain grade of steel. Mm-hmm. So you'd want to be a certain amount of malleability and, called well, crikey, I'm, I, I even remember some of it. I don't know, as I'm talking about 50 years ago. <laughs> Wow. Oh, now that is a job. That is a real job. You must have seen that somewhere. That's not one you read in an Enid Blyton book, is it? <laughs> so, okay, so next question. Favourite famous person? Favourite famous person? Wow. I've got loads and loads. Um, well, that's a very difficult question. I suppose if you said at the, I've, I've probably got one at the moment and I've got one that uh i suppose i would say as a leader and i'm not talking about this from a religious sense so much but i would say jesus and the reason i would say jesus was because when you look at the parables i read a book once by a guy called dr gary north and he was really into biblical concepts of economics and he he goes through the different parables and you read the parables as a kid and they're very difficult some of them are quite difficult to understand so the stories of jesus or the parables that he gave to people and then some some of them are quite difficult to interpret but what he does he puts an economic interpretation onto the parables it's really fascinating and it's Mm -hmm. very interesting when today you look at uh, investing in yourself and maybe uh, spending uh, resource or spending time and money on mentors today, which is something that a lot of people do. And I know that you do, Rich, and I do. Yeah, we both um, You invest in yourself. And um, one of the things he did was said to his disciples, really invest in yourselves. 
So he walked past a fisherman and said, you know, drop your nets, give up everything if you want to follow me, you know. And so they were investing in him. And what they got from the teacher was not just the knowledge and the teaching, but being standing next to him and being in his presence. They they actually got, um, they picked up his energy. They picked up okay. his energy. Yeah, yeah. And what I found with mentors of mine, it's one thing having a mentor online, which, which is really beneficial. But when you're actually with a mentor in presence, you kind of get that extra thing, like that Different extra ball game. energy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and it's a bit like, you know, someone you look up to, even when you're a kid, if you've got an older friend or something like that, you want to be around them, you kind of pick something up that's kind of quite difficult to describe. So you could almost forget what they're teaching you in the detail, but you can, you, as you go through life, you, you behave in a certain way that gives you that confidence that that, and energy that that person had. You yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. no, I yeah. totally get that. Okay, cool. So moving on to the next one, then three things from your bucket list. Three things from the bucket list. I would like to go to the pyramids in Egypt. I'd love okay. to go and see that. Uh, it's something I've never done. Uh, my fiance is really into that ancient Egyptian stuff. And uh, she quite often watches stuff on the telly about it. And I find myself sitting watching it. And it's really fascinating. Um, I recently went to the exhibition in London, which was the Tutankhamun exhibition absolutely if you haven't been if you can go to i haven't i've heard a lot of good stuff about it but i've not been yet yeah and some of the ancient things that they used to do and know and teach are kind of things that coming back today in in a kind of roundabout way you know so they're really fascinating race and 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 culture to follow so Mm. one of the things that's one thing i'd like to do um I always, when I was younger, I was into climbing, rock climbing and backpacking. And I always wanted to climb a, climb a tough mountain, but I think I'm probably getting a bit too too old for that one, but uh, that would have been on my bucket list. And um, I'd like to visit the Taj Mahal in India. That would be something I'd like to do. And I think generally I'd like to go if I can I've never really, I've traveled in my life, but not really traveled seriously for, you know, to visit a number of different places, mm. but I, I'd like to do that and visit more different, more cult, more, more different countries and cultures. Um, I've never been to Africa. I'd like to go there. So when wow. I, yeah. So when, when a few years ago, I had a business in the eighties and uh, it was a steelwork business, actually, probably what led in from the metallurgy. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, there's a, there's a thread there, isn't <laughs> and, there? Yeah, and I used to um, send money out to an orphanage in Uganda, and uh, they and and when that when we got to the um, end of the eighties, there was a recession, yes. and so the work died down, and uh, so I decided to shut the business. There's no point in keeping it open, so I closed the workshop. And what I did with all the equipment, drills and saws and the welding gear and the grinders, I sent them all out to Africa to the orphanage. And they use that to continue to build the orphanage, you know. Oh, so I would love to go out there, you know, but mm-hmm. I never actually got out there in person. Mm-hmm. So that's something else I'd like to do. Yeah. Cool. That's quite a philanthropic thing to do. Send all your stuff out, isn't it? Mm. Cool. So, okay, so next question. If you could have dinner with one famous person, who would they be? Where would you eat? And what would you eat? Wow. Now that's an interesting one. 
Um, I'm going to be a little bit controversial here. And I'm going to say, he's probably because he's the first person coming mad. I'm going to say Nigel Farage. Uh, I'll tell you why. I just find him a very fascinating character. I think he's been in the public eye for, what, 20 years, many, many years. He's always been the kind of, in inverted commas, the fugitive. He's always been attacked, but he's, he's taken a lot of flack. But look what he's achieved as a single person, yeah. you know. I mean, I know he's been, he headed up a, a, a political party, but, but him as an individual, what he's achieved and, you know, to come under the, the, you know, to get the ups and downs that he's been through and then achieved the, uh, the Brexit thing, really. You yeah. know, he was the one that was the catalyst to, to all of that. Um, and then he was the, uh, then he had his uh, Nigel Farage show. And I just find him an interesting character. And I'd like to sit down and have dinner with him because I think you could get a lot of strength and energy from somebody like that. Yeah, I love I what, yeah. yeah. And I love watching him speak. And, you know, he's a really, really good speaker. Uh, I love the way he uses tonality of his voice. And I, I know that he must work on that as well. So he's I would imagine he, he must have. I mean, I've got a coach who does a lot of stuff around that kind of thing. Um, and that is a huge, huge subject in its own right. And you could, there are actually people out there that only coach on vocals and actually are audit, audit, I can't think of a word now, um, t- tonal differences and injecting intonation at, at certain points in what you're saying to articulate what you're talking about. So I would imagine that, that I don't believe that that's something that's God given. I think that's something that you're, you either pick up from people that are around you or you're actually taught that. And, you know, I would agree. I mean, he, he is a master at that, certainly. But I think if you look at, certainly there's a few politicians around these days that seem to have been coached in that manner. Um, mm. Because the way that they can articulate the, I put something across without reference to a lot of notes and then, you know, almost be roasted by journalists these days because it almost seems, I mean, especially the COVID briefings, questions that they seem to get thrown at them are just absolutely, completely random. And yet, Somehow, somehow, from within somewhere, they find the ability to be able to answer those questions at yeah. complete random, articulately, succinctly, and very quickly, but diplomatically as well. And I think that's the, that's the real key, and that's, yeah. that's certainly something that he is good at. I would agree with that. Absolutely, it's a real art, and I think it's a case of trusting yourself. Mm-hmm. You know that you can get in front of people without notes. I think once you've got the notes, you're not trusting in yourself. You know, you're 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 kind of looking for that prop. Yeah, but to know your subject, to be confident in yourself, and to be true to your own values. So if you're being true to your own values, then I think you can trust yourself, and I think they do. You know, they when they get to that level in politics, they must, uh, you know, they have their ideals, and they're people generally that are uh, vested in themselves, invested in their own values. So then I think that's what gives them the confidence. Yeah, you know, to tackle. You can, yeah. you can certainly see that. I mean. I was saying to my wife this evening, it's you, you look at the way that every single person that's been on those briefings for COVID has handled themselves. Mm. And, you know, there's not one that you can level a single criticism at. The way that they've sort of delivered is just nothing short of phenomenal, really, the pressure that they've come under. So, okay, so, so three things that you would put in Room 101. A running shoe to remind me of when I used to be able to go out running. Um, so that would be, that would be one. Um, I think I would put, hmm, 
probably put my put put my car in there because I spend a lot of time in there in my car, and uh, that's probably where I do a, a lot of my study. So it's my mobile university, if you like. So if I'm in there on my own and I I stick an audio on, so I think that's going to be uh, that would be an important thing for me, room one oh one. And um, oh, I've got to say this is going to be terrible, and everyone's going to moan. It'll have to be my mobile phone. <laughs> I don't do you know. What? I don't know many people that don't have one. I, I used to have a client probably 12, 15 years ago now, I suppose. Um, and at the time, I mean, we did, it wasn't like nowadays with smartphones. I mean, I, I think I probably had like a Nokia 6310 at the time. Um, in fact, I probably did because I had those for years and I certainly didn't have a Blackberry or anything. Um, but this, client, this particular client did not have a mobile phone and we were doing a, a half a million pound external dex job with him. It was quite challenging. It was, it didn't, I mean, it, it was, it didn't start until I think four floors above ground. Um, so the scaffold base, that was really complicated. It was around the back of an embassy. It was a really challenging job. It was a, the estimator that priced it had missed out two elevations and three light wells. So we were, oh, oh yeah, we were like, we was, we were skints and churning about 300 grand on this job. And um, and he knew it as well, this this CA, and it was really hard work. And what was what made it even harder was that he didn't have a mobile phone. Yeah. <laughs> he could, unless he was in sight me, it was yeah. just like you couldn't speak to a guy. And he, but he'd write to you, he'd send you a letter. Yeah. And his letter would be about seven pages. And it would take you four days to reply to it. <laughs> so in the four days you were replying to his letter, you weren't actually getting on with what you were supposed to be doing. And I said to him one day, why won't you get a mobile phone? And he said, then I'll be as busy as all you other fools and why would I want to do that I've got six years until I retire I've managed without one and I shall never have one as long as I live yeah and it, yeah. his whole model was that and you know the clients that he worked with loved him accepted that that was how he worked and that was how that was how he did everything I mean he used to literally dictate his letters onto like a type a fixed phone send yeah. that to, into like a typing pool in West London and they type his letters with and that was that was how he worked yeah well it all projects, uh, there's a lot more demand for output these days. I remember, I do remember the days when I, when I first started work, mobile phones, phones weren't even invented, mm, yeah. you know. And so we, we used to do stuff without mobile phones and it used mm. to be letters and, uh, you know, we still used to get projects done and things used to get done. Mm. And you used to, if you wanted to make a phone call, you'd have to go into the office and use a landline. Yeah. Um, and everything else was done by letter and you, it would be the norm to expect two weeks before you got a reply on yeah. a letter. Could you imagine that today? You, you know, people email you, they expect to reply within about 15 minutes. It, but I don't think that, I don't think that's actually a positive thing. And I, I remember being on a, being on a lane job, um, in Watford where mobile phones first came out and we had, we had two on site at the time. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget, it, it was in the days when it, they were McGee's, not Griffiths McGee, they were McGee's. And um, the bloke who owned it turned out and he'd got a mobile phone. It was about like the size of a bloody three by two paving slab. It was enormous, this one. Um, and that was the first <laughs> time I'd ever, I'd ever actually seen one in, in real life. Yeah. Um, but one thing I do remember was sitting in site meetings and pre-order meetings with subcontractors. And one of the things that always came up in the attendances was the subby always wanted the main contractor to allow his blokes to use the landline to phone their labour returns and stuff through. And it was actually a line in the meeting minutes in the attendance. Yeah. It was provision of a telephone for a subcontractor to be able to use. And the clerk of works always wanted a telephone line into their office on a separate number. And, yeah. and yet these days you don't have that. And I'm not sure actually 
the, the, the volume and the amount of communication, I don't think we actually get a better product. I think what it does is it stops people actually making decisions for themselves a lot of the time. Yeah, I think you're right. Maybe the pendulums uh, swung the other way. The, the, you know, the other way. You know, we, we're where maybe in the past we couldn't get enough communication out quick enough, but now we're getting too much communication. I think people are getting overwhelmed with too much yeah. communication, and the instruction lines are getting blood. I mean, look at my email. Uh, my email box now. I I can't physically open all my emails. Where when they first came out, I used to. Um, take pride in opening and responding to all my emails and every night my emails were all done and finished and that was it now you there's just so many thousands of emails coming in all the time but all this email marketing and you unsubscribe and you're unsubscribed for something for a couple of weeks and then it comes back again you know and you just can't i think emails are probably getting to the point of saturation now you know they've got to be some other way in which we can communicate, particularly on a project, that there should be official workflow communication lines instead of everything's kind of mixed up with trivia as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah the, the, the thing is, stuff gets lost. Yeah. You get, you'll get an important email from somebody and actually and it'll get lost or, or the subject line won't relate, and that is my pet hate, the subject line bears no resemblance because yeah. someone's just clicked on an old email and been lazy and has gone, oh, I'll just reply to that. And, there's seven things and what's in the subject does it might be a valuation but actually they're talking about an O&M manual or a steelwork drawing or a bending surgery I'm like hold on a minute this bears no resemblance so it's really difficult to track actually what communication relates to what I mean it is getting better there are workflow systems out there now I mean we're just implementing workflow max because it kind of links through from HubSpot right away through to zero so it's, a, it's interfaced right away through from our CRM right through to our accounts um, and that's been really interesting, actually, because it's made us kind of like re-examine what our processes are and actually how we go about doing stuff. So we can actually, so the, if when the sales girl is making like a call to a prospect and then follow that up with an email, that sits in HubSpot. When that, that, that prospect becomes a tender, that goes into Workflow Max as part of the estimating process. When we, when we win that job, because we win one in sort of two and a half to three, that goes through into the, the project side of Workflow Max. And all of that information automatically moves across. Yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to do anything with it. It just automatically moves across. Yep. So it's all there. So when somebody from accounts is saying, "Well, hold on a minute, this invoice hasn't been paid," they've got the whole chain of the whole job, so they know who, who all the key people were. And every email that gets sent on that project is there. So you're not relying on somebody's outlet to try and find an email. All of the key communications in there just by project project reference to the job number. So yep. there are ways of doing it. Um, and there's hundreds of different ways of doing it. I just think a lot of companies just choose not to bother doing it. I mean, I remember Mansell's years ago, used to have the, and I was working for, as a consultant for Subway, and they had a thing in their pre-order minutes where if you emailed one of their team, you had to CC in the project number, and that had its own email address. And then they had some some form of software software in their head office where that would then put that onto like some mainframe server, and it would log all those emails, not just in their Outlook, but also in their project folder on their server. No, there's yeah. loads of solutions. I just think people are just lazy and just don't do it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And there's lots of different solutions and some are better than others. I mean, with ours, for example, we're using, um, internally, we use um, Dynamics. Uh, okay. 365 Dynamics. Yeah. And we use that for our internal quality management system. And it works very well. But I find with um, Microsoft projects, they are a little bit difficult 
they're not always that user friendly. Mm. So I think they want you to use a Microsoft registered to run it for you, you know. Mm. Uh, so I think HubSpot or something like that would probably be more user friendly. But we started our process probably about five, four or five years ago. And so we're kind of stuck with it. But there's so yeah. much you can do on Dynamics, you know, similar to what you're doing with yours. So track the, the initial co uh, communications right the way through the project, uh, right the way to the end of the project. And we move ours on automatically as well. So when the project reaches certain stages, then and it needs to be checked by somebody, then that somebody gets an email saying, right, this project's reached this stage. You need to go in and check this, 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 and this. Right. You know, so, so that's yeah. good for that. So we've got a level of automation and um, I think it's just really the thing is finding something for, I mean, we, we use Outlook. Most people, I suppose, use Outlook. Yeah, for a lot. It's Outlook. the biggest, biggest provider by far, apparently. Yeah. And it, it's really how you sort the wheat from the chaff on, um, on Outlook. I think that's mm. a big challenge. I've had murders with it ever since it moved over from being sort of based on the C drive to being this Office 365. The amount of times I'll search for an email. So I did it the other day. I was looking for handovers to someone that they sent me the night before and I knew I'd had it because I'd read it on my phone. And I wanted, I just literally just wanted to file it on the server and I've not done it off my phone, which I could have done. And um, I was looking for it and I couldn't find it. And he was like, no, I've definitely sent it. I said, I know you've sent it, Mark, but do me a favour. Can you resend it? And mm. sure enough, it pops up, but it wouldn't yeah. come up in the search function. And I've had a couple of clients have said the same thing where they sort yeah. of they couldn't find emails they'd sent out with with one was they couldn't find a sent item that was actually a tender they sent out. Mm. Um, and they rang and said, Can you confirm you've got it? And another one was a CA that we're doing a project with and they'd sent us a payment certificate. We couldn't find where they'd sent it and they wanted to save the sent mail in there on their server. I was like, No, we've got it. And they, they just couldn't find it. So I don't I don't know whether there's quite a lot of glitches in three six five. It certainly doesn't seem to be as kind of user friendly as the, the old version was and it's not a question of getting used to the ribbon it's actually it's the search function that seems to kind of almost yeah. lost its kind of and that was it used to be really good it used to be a really good part of it um and it's just stupid stuff like they don't have an unread mail file anymore you have mm. to create one under the search tab it's that's yeah. pretty basic sort of stuff yeah but you're right. it's not as good as it was but there you go i think that okay. uh yeah Right. So, what what other questions we've got? So, last question: What makes you proud? What makes me proud? What makes me what makes me proud is youngsters. Really, when I see youngsters um, setting out, taking initiative, taking their first steps into work, and being able to, you know, give them some, uh, you know, some guidance, some steer steering in the right direction. Um, for example, my fiance's son, Rob, he's recently started work and to see him all, all of a sudden, uh, and so he's working in a, a supermarket. So he's one of the people that is going out there every day and doing wow. shows and all of that. And I'm really proud of him because he's gone from almost, you know, being in school and having that kind of mentality of being mm -hmm. after all the time to being a man really overnight when he started work. And now he's looking at things differently. It's almost like switching a light bulb on, you know. <laughs> and uh, so that makes me proud yeah. to see that and to see him being taking responsibility, you know, to get up in the morning, get there, go there, and um, really being responsible in what he does, you know, all, all of a sudden. And I think that's, that makes me proud. Um, I think it, it, it makes me proud around people that 
yeah, I mean, even in this situation with the COVID situation, people pulling together, people trying to do the right thing. I think it, it, it makes me proud around people that, yeah, I mean, even in this situation with the COVID situation, people pulling together, people trying to do the right thing. And, you know, we're not, we've not turned into a police state. We've, we've actually doing this in a way that is, I quite like in a way Boris Johnson's style, like, you know, he's kind of come on, you know, let's all pull together, let's all do it. Yeah. And I think people are generally doing that. So it kind of makes you look proud of your country, you know, proud of what you're doing. Oh, very we much are so, getting yeah. a, We are getting a bit of stick from abroad about we haven't done this early enough, we haven't done that early enough. But at the same time, I'm proud of the way it's going now and the way we're doing a lot of catch up. And now we're overtaking, you know, there's a lot of research, a lot of good stuff coming out of the um, uh, King's College, and, and all of the efforts they're putting in, you know, to identify the virus, to, 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 to try and get the, a, a, a vaccine and everything that's going on, um, makes you proud. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm quite a staunch British patriot, I must admit, yeah. um, but I've never been prouder than I am right now today. Yeah. You know, 750,000 people, myself included, put ourselves up to be NHS volunteers you know, I've got I've got guys that we've furloughed because we've had to. You know, I'm on furlough, my wife's on furlough, but every one of our staff has said, you know what? Actually, I'm going to sign up for that. If I can do some good, then I'll I want to do that. And I think, do you know what? What a tremendous response. You know, the Nightingale Hospital. Mm. Everyone's saying, oh, we're yeah, the Chinese built a hospital in such and such a time. We've only fitted out an exhibition centre. Well, no, we haven't just fitted out an exhibition centre. That is a massive feat, as you know as well as I do. Absolutely. That is a massive feat of, of engineering and construction, but more than anything, logistics. To get yeah. all of those different component products with the right labour in that building, through that front door and through the delivery port, and actually fit that out, that is nothing short of a, mir- of a miracle. Oh, it's amazing what they've done there. And I think a lot of people don't realise the actual the volume and the number of different components that go into something like that. So it's not just what you see on the telly and the partitions, it's the services, it's the communication systems, it's you know, it's the it, it's it's everything that keeps that place yeah. going in the background, you know. It's, and it's, the, all, it's all of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's getting it all. I mean, it's even stupid stuff like getting Medigas there and getting all that parked in. I mean, there's stuff that goes into putting that. I've done hospital refurbs and you have meeting after meeting after meeting about just getting a Medigas supply on. They've just done it. They've got it done. But I yeah. think also what's been surprising is the amount of sort of entrepreneurial kids that have taken it upon themselves to kind of try and help. So you've mm. got kids that have like 3D printed a bit of plastic that will turn a snorkel into something that you can be converted into a ventilator. Mm. You know, you've got JCB saying, we'll, we'll make the chassis to hold ventilators. Dyson are making a different model of a ventilator. You've got businesses that, that one minute are making one product, mm. the next minute, through a massive amount of work, but have actually gone, do you know what? We'll get behind this. We will completely disrupt what we're doing, and we'll help, and we'll get behind it, and we will build something that will help. That I, I've never seen in my lifetime. I sincerely hope we never have to see it again, but... I think it's huge testament to some of the people that run some of these big national businesses like yeah. Dyson, like JCB, you know, mm. and there's plenty of others. Um, but, you know, hats off to them because they've, they've, none of them had to do it. There's plenty of other bigger firms that have said, we're just going to shut or, you know, we're just going to carry on and stay out of it. So that I think is, I find, makes me equally as proud the way the industry has responded to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll, um, you know, 
in, in we in Britain we we sometimes we quite often put ourselves down, but when it comes to you know the crunch, I think we pull out the stops and we're very. I think we're very innovative. You know, we're very out there, pushing the boat out there, doing new things, being creative. And when the chips are down, I think, you know, they do pull out the stops and it's really good to see. I think the other thing you mentioned about the kids and that, I mean, uh, you know, my hat goes off to all the parents at the moment that have got the kids at home and they're trying to, then they're educating them and stuff like that. It's very interesting. Do you know what? I think this is going to change the way that kids are educated. Not that they're Uh not going to go back to school, but... You know, you're seeing more and more kids getting involved in entrepreneurial things as mm. part of their education. And I mean, look at that young lad, Ryan, that tests the children's kids. I, know. I mean, he's made an absolute fortune, probably a lot more than his parents have ever, ever done. And he's, mm. what, I don't know what he is, six or 12 or what, what, I'm not sure how old he is, but very young. Yeah. And, um, you know, you mentioned about the 3D printing. And at the moment, you know, there, uh, Rob Moore, for example, is doing uh doing um entrepreneurial um seminar uh, webinars for kids at the moment while they're at home mm. to teach them about entrepreneurial being creative and self-development and all of those sorts of things and um you know one of the reasons that i look back that there, there used to be i remember when i was a youngster there was a big thing about what age should children go to school because mm. in the old days in those days of industry um they stopped the kids going to work because you know, and I think they used to go to school, uh, go to work when I was 14 and even younger. Um, but in those days, it was a different type of industry. You know, the kids, you know, it was a tough, yeah. heavy industry, long hours, exploitation, and not really somewhere for a kid, a child to be. Yeah, it was industry rather than business, wasn't it? And yeah. big, I think there's a big difference, big distinction yeah. there. And there was always that analogy of, you know, we shouldn't be putting kids up the chimney you know, and chimney sweeps and that. But the world's changed. And, you know, why can't children, young children as part of their education in an industries which are online industries earn money? Why, uh-huh. can't, they be, why can't they be entrepreneurs as, as, as youngsters or, you know, you know, instead of waiting until they're 18 before they can get a job, which is often the case now. You have to stay yeah, very much so. 18. But by the time, you know, the, the real creative part of a person's life is when they're a child. That's when the creativity, the play, you know, the uninhibited, the, you know, the creativity comes out. And there's so much, um, I know we kind of digressed a bit about on subjects, but I think this is probably something interesting that's coming out of this stay at home thing you know very much so yeah it's been uh, getting more involved in their education online and so why i suppose the question i would ask now is why can't you know why do those old rules those old draconian rules that were relevant in 50 60 years ago why why are they relevant now you know and i think we need to yeah. start challenging those those ideas and say the world's changed yeah, I think I think we will. I think for two, for a number of reasons. I think education. Well, I don't think education will never will ever look the same. Um, I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think one is that actually what is proved is that it is physically possible to deliver the educational element of school life, but digitally, pretty much apart from some of the practical lessons. Um, and I think the other thing that we will drive is that by moving to that kind of digital delivery of certainly of some of the core subjects what it should help is actually people to be able to enjoy family holidays during mm. term time. 
absolutely which, which would massively reduce the financial burden on fam on families you know i mean most fam most families that have got young kids you know they haven't got loads of surplus cash women about you know they find it hard to find the money for a family holiday these days yeah. and if they can do that during term time actually and their kids still get some time because let's face it quite a lot of kids some of them have still got an ipad or some form of digital device if they could still get or two, three hours of, of, of school lessons during the course of a day, what's to stop that happening? And I think that that will probably not in the next two or three years, because I think it, you know, it's going to be two years before we even know what this is actually really cost the economy. Because mm. there's yeah. always going to be a lack of actually, well, how much did we give out in loans? How much have we had to supplementary put into the business on all the loans into different schemes? How much has it cost us to sort of upscale the NHS and all the support that's had to be put into that? There's going to be a massive lag for that to catch up. But I think at some point in the next five years, there certainly needs to be some learning done and some kind of, a, you know, like on a job, we have a debrief at the end of a project, don't we? And we go, right, what was good, what was bad, what can we learn from it? Mm. I think there needs to be a very, very kind of like, almost like a public consultation as to actually what was good and what was bad and what can we take from this going forward. And it's not just about having more ventilators. It's about actually how can we change society for the better? Absolutely, yeah, and 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 already in 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 construction, you know, it's exposing some of the um, the risk areas of 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 money and cash and the way that it's structured. I think the old procurement routes are being challenged. You know, the concept of, I mean, I, of course, as you know, I'm I'm very interested in studying how cash moves in construction. <coughs> And, and not, your pet subject isn't my it? pet subject yeah and and not just um you know we all know about uh, developing cash flow within a project so we'll we'll we'll, we'll work a, a cash flow based on the activities and the cost of each of the activities in the project and link the cash to the program so we're we're, we're managing internally the cash flow but what i'm really interested in how the cash actually gets there in the first place you know and <laughs> gets where it's meant to go no gets where it's meant to go yeah, yeah. because you know they, there are a lot of good subcontractors that lose out because of the way that cash gets blocked or cash moves slowly cash goes into a project it goes out of a project then it comes back into a project later and you know you and, and by necessity because of the siloed structure that we have you know you you start with a a lot of projects if it's a new build or any project really is quite often will be funded through development finance so there'll be a lag between the release of a milestone payment from development finance to the developer or to the client and then there'll be another lag in time from the client to the contract main contractor and then there'll be another lag beyond that from the contractor to the subcontractor and another lag to the from the subcontractor to the to the supplier and you can see the friction in the system and not only and that wouldn't that would you know if that's not bad enough it's not a straight line uh, it's not a straight line because it will go the money goes in and out and in and out so it doesn't go in a straight line either and you know the the, the faster money flows the more wealth grows and i think that with construction it punches below its weight in terms of wealth creation for the country nationally and the, and the communities around it. And that's one of the reason that, reasons that drives me in terms of finding better ways to make cash move in construction because the, it, it affects people's lives and it affects 
people's prosperity and then that goes down to people and families and children and education and the community and all of that and there's a wonderful opportunity for construction to start punching at its weight and above its weight it, it can get rid of the frictions uh, that relate to the movement of cash and so that's why i'm really interested in it. i think maybe this situation might be a catalyst for us to have to create and come up with something much better I certainly think it will help the kind of the, the message and the journey that you want to go on, because I think the one thing that there's a couple of things that I think is going to raise. I think there's going to be a lot of contractors that are going to go to the wall. Um, and I'll put that out there. I mean, I had a conversation with a client this afternoon about some job. We do a lot of work for this, this contract administrator. Um, and they were saying that some of the big contractors that I normally bid against, they're actually just shut the door and they're not actually bidding any work. Well, that's mm. great. But what's going to happen when you come back to work at the end of the lockdown associated with mm. COVID-19, you're going to have no pipeline. So, mm. so how are you going to fund your overhead when all, all of a sudden the furlough subsistence sort of funding stops and you bring everyone back to work? Where's your cash going to come from to meet your overhead? You're effectively mm. going to have lost a quarter of a year's sales to sales value. Yeah. Okay, so you've, you, you haven't necessarily got some of the overhead costs because some of the staff you furloughed. But some of the other fixed overheads are still going to be the same. Your insurance isn't going to go down for a quarter. You're still going to be paying rent on rent on rates on offices and stuff. You know they're only deferring those kinds of things, and they're still going to be payable. So I think it's it's going to be really really tough, and there's going to be quite a few contractors that are going to go to the wall. And then what's going to happen is that those contractors have inevitably got retention books that they're carrying. Some contractors are going to lose the retentions that have been withheld, albeit probably in accordance with the contracts that they've signed. But those poor subcontractors are then going to potentially look at losing those retentions. And, you know, I mean, retentions, what, to some ordinarily 5% to PC, 25 thereafter. But there are instances I've had clients that hold 10% um, up to PC and 5% for a 12 month afterwards. If it's a job that's got design or specialist trade packages in, right? Like M&E and specialist services. So, you know, 5%, for a lot of subbies, that's a big lump, if not probably yeah. a, a third to a half of their profit they make. Massive. So, to lose that is just wrong. And it's not, yeah. you know, okay, what are they guilty of? Well, they might be guilty of not being proactive and chasing that retention up. But technically, it's still their money. So when, when some of these firms go to the wall, which is going to unfortunately, sadly, be almost inevitable, um, they're going to be the ones that are going to be carrying the can, both in terms of earned value that they've not invoiced or, or even have invoiced but have not managed to actually convert into cash and also retention. So mm. I think it, it does have an impact, but it also has a bigger impact sort of outside of construction because, you know, if those businesses, if they'd had that money, they might spend that in the pub or at the shop or paying a bill. Or So it does, it does filter off outside of the industry as well because then you end up with other businesses like local shops where there might have been some lunch credit or you know, like local pubs or restaurants, they're taking start going down. So it does end up actually cascading out of the industry. Absolutely. And I, I think there might be a way to get this back up started. It's not going to salvage everything, but I think there's a way out of this. And I think it's got to be led by employers, uh, by the clients, employers, developers. And the way to do this is, you know, contractors and subcontractors are going to be feeling the pinch, you know, for one extent or another, they're going to have issues with their cash flow because they've, they, the, the, the work stopped and everything you've just said, Richard, uh, will be pressing upon them. And so it's up to the client, really. They hold the head, they hold the head contract at the end of the day, you know, and their supply chain 
is, you know, we can talk about companies and we can talk about contracts and we can talk about law and who's responsible. But at the end of the day, those sk the skill and the expertise is vested in people. It's vested in individuals. You yeah, know? Of and, and I would, if I was a, an employer, I'd be looking to think, well, I need to get those individuals back on my projects. I need to get my project finished. And how am I going to do that? And I know that they're, those companies that they work for, those subcontractors and the contractors, they're going to be under a lot of uh, pre pressure. Their companies are under a lot of stress. And they might not, uh, in a couple of months' time, have any cash flow left. You know, So I've got to pick my project up. How can I pick my project up with my contractor and my subcontractors, knowing that they've got the cash or the cash flow to bring into the project or to keep going so i think what what i'd need to do is to uh, one way i could do it is speak to my financier and lender which i should have done already by now and talked about how can this is a situation how can we readjust the payment profile for the for the funding in the project and i'm going to take control of the payments so it might be for a short period of time, but I think there's a model in here for the future anyway. And then I, if I'm in control of the cash and paying the cash, then that cash hasn't got to go through all those different hands. There's, as it goes into one bank account, then the next bank account, then the next bank account down the supply chain, um, where it's got all different demands on it. So, you know, if I paid my contractor, there might be demands from the tax man, there might be demands from their insurance, from their employees, from their overheads on that cash as soon as it hits that bank account. I'm at risk, my project's at risk. Is his bank account likely to be frozen? You know, we don't know. So I want to keep hold of the cash. So what I would do is I would talk to my lender and say, look, you know, I need to manage this cash. I need to get the project finished. I need to get these guys back on site. And so what I'm going to do is what we're going to do we're going to set up a system we're going to pay from the raw materials upwards so we're going to pay the we're going to pay the subcontract suppliers the subcontractors and the people in it we'll pay them direct on certification of the work that they've done so that could mean the normal approach to certification and payments or it could also mean micro payments and i would have a look at at the uh principle of micro payments because what that means is that I can pay them much quicker because bearing in mind, we're in damage limitation and rescue mode. So we need to get everyone back up and running. We need to do it quickly. We need to get some, uh, we need to get some liquidity quickly. So what you could do is chart a QS to remeasure your project in terms of what I call inverted commas, uh, a, a micro, uh, a very granular uh, level of um, cost centers, if you like, based on the areas areas physical area geographical areas within the project which relate to each and every trade so what you can then do is to you can um dataize that so that you're i don't probably getting over i'm probably going in a bit more, too much detail really but basically what it means is i can manage that the project that i can i can then make much more regular micro payments to the guys until we get back up and running. So it's all about liquidity. It's all about getting the work flowing. It's all about getting the, getting the money flowing. So I would say, take control of the, have a system where you take control of the payments, get a, a granular document uh, put together based on uh, a, a, a granular level of work trade, get your micro payments set up, pay the payments directly as each micro uh, a, a micro milestone is complete 
so you can you can actually pay much quicker so you're not waiting until the end of the month and you haven't got your you haven't got your payments every month where they're kind of not particularly accurate. We're trying to second guess exactly what's gone in on that month. What you're, you're even breaking it down to weekly payments on micro milestones. So yes, there's a little bit of extra work on assessing and certifying that work per week, but you, you, the money is going to come in direct. It's not at risk of leaking out the project and it gets everyone running. It gets everyone going much quicker. So there's a complete, in a nutshell, in a box, there is That's your solution. <laughs> a solution uh, uh, to, to, to get us out, to get started again. But I mean, I, th I, think, I think I can see why that can work. Um, I think there will be some obstacles to it, but I think there's some big pluses. And the ones, as a sort of a lay person builder that I am, that I would see from my sort of point of view would be, first and foremost, it gets the cash to the actual, to the physical guys that are actually doing the work. So the chippies, the dry liners, the spreads, the decorators, that's where the money needs to get to because the rest of it can just be done on the promise certificate basis, can't it? So the money's yeah. still moving through. Um, and, and, and that, that can almost be done. So you can have, you can almost strip that out and say, well, we'll pay that labor and we'll pay that materials and the, whatever the balance is on that measure, we'll pay to whoever, whether it's a dry lining subby or, or yeah. whoever it is. Um, but I think the win, the win for the for the client, and certainly on development type type jobs more so than what we do, is that that would actually get the project moving quicker. And and really, the people that are funding these jobs want that money on risk. Yeah, they're not they're not interested in having the job they've committed to lend ten million quid against, and then they're not interested in having that not sitting on actual on their loan book because they want it sitting on loan book. So that that's where it needs to be. So that their figures stack up. So. I can see why it would work from their point of view. I suppose mm. I think the only person that potentially might have an issue with it would be either the developer or whoever is going to be paying for an additional level of certification resource because to kind of start drilling down into micro level, looking at, you know, that's, that's quite a bit of work. You know, yeah. that's, that's more than just saying, well, okay, we'll just put a QS on site full time. You know, if you've got, I mean, what have you got on a typical new build job? 40, 50 trade packages, including some sub packages in services? Yeah. yeah. That's a lot of packages to be managing. No QS is going to be managing, managing that amount of packages and valuing all of that to that level. So the only thing I would say is I think it could work. I think it's a good idea. Is the resource out there right now to be able to do that? Bearing in mind the shortage that there seems to be of good quality QS candidates anyway. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think what we would, what we, what you would have to do is you would have to, develop develop the system where you're you're basically you've got your 40 or 50 trades and actually you already know what they are you know but the the current system lumps them all together mm. into in, into once a month yeah so, uh, i know the jct in the um the fair pay um scheme from the government is trying to align all the pay uh, attempting to align all the payments which has made a big which i think is a, is a big step forward but i think what what we need to do is is basically in fact it could be quite simple because you you're basically taking what you'd pay each month and just carving it up on yeah, a daily basically. basis you just yeah. carve it up on daily but a daily basis which is quite straightforward to do and um you just need to then get someone down there you know i mean crikey a, a decent graduate with a with a decent camera or a decent uh, one of these new digital cameras that's could, what the technology could, exists you know yeah. i mean we've, we've done it recently on the roofing job yeah. and we had to do a load of internal making good and we literally just walked into every room we bought i can't remember what it was called now i think it's an insta nano camera yeah. it's like a 360 camera you just walk into the middle of the room we were on a tripod 
press the button, it takes a complete 360 degree. So it doesn't only capture the walls, it captures the floor and the ceiling, which in this instance could be quite important when you're thinking about first, to, first fixing services and stuff, um, and certainly first fixing metalwork for, for dry line ceilings. But, you know, you could get somebody, like a chain boy could run around doing that. And, Absolutely. you know, that could be on a live feed straight back to an office. And then it's just a question of evaluating that footage and saying, well, actually, are you 30 or 50% complete on that particular trade package? So Absolutely. Think- and we're, we're, we've already been doing that sort of thing for a couple of years in my business. Because, you know, my mm. office where we do all the, all, the, all the technical stuff and the QS stuff is in Hyderabad in mm. India. And we, all our projects are in the UK. And basically, we just have somebody going around site once a month or once a week with a camera or we've got a pro forma as well that they fill in, you know, these mm-hmm. need to check and need to look at. So there's that, there's cameras and they just, they just, um, just send that over the internet to, to the guy and we can do it real time. I mean, there's been times on site where, where I've gone on with a camera live and it's live projecting back yeah. to the office and they're, they're seeing what I'm seeing and we're talking yeah. to each other, you know, so I think it can be done. I think, yeah, like you say, a graduate with some training and one of those cameras uh, feeding back. And in fact, you could probably do, you could get, you could get the, the structural engineer, the architect, the M&E engineer, the, and the QS and the client in different places in the country on their laptop with one guy on site with a camera and everybody's talking. Now we're all getting used to Zoom meetings together and anything like that. I was just going to come on to this, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, to get all those guys on site would probably cost you three or four grand on the, on the, on the day they go to the site visit. Instead, they could be in their office at home on their laptop. That, those images can be pinging back. They could be all talking to each other on a, on a Zoom. And the guy on site, the, the graduate or the guy, that, the intermediate guy with the camera is also in communication. They could say, right, mm. I want you to go around in this room. Now go over there, have a look at that. So, you know, all of a sudden you've reduced your cost, your costs from a day's outing or a, or a stayover to maybe an hour or two hour meeting on a zoom. So you've reduced your cost down from three grand to, 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 to 500 quid or something like that, mm. you know? And uh, so it can be done. I think that it can be done and I think it needs must, I think coming out of this, um, anything's possible if you put your mind to it. I don't think the industry will be the same again. I think there's, I mean, I mean, we were pretty, reasonably sort of tech savvy anyway um but we've learned so much and if, you know if we were pretty pretty reasonably sort of adept at leveraging tech as much as we could there's certainly probably half a dozen if not more lessons we've learned about working smarter um but as you quite rightly say i mean site meetings is one of them i mean we did a big half a million pound communal refurb last year um and it there was lifts involved there was new lifts which came from italy there was asbestos removal which was all licensed and notifiable um, there's about 16 different trade subcontracts on this on this job, um, and we had I think we had about six week lead in from um, possession of site for design stuff, um, and we did some of those meetings as calls with people from Italy from the lift company and different stuff. Um, but I was there was an article on LinkedIn. I don't know if you saw it the other day, um, and it's a project that obviously has been shut down because of COVID 19, um, and there were 26 people in the design team. Um, that we're going to go to site, we're due to go to site for a site meeting to sign off a set of staircase drawings. Oh. They, they signed off the same set of drawings in a 25 minute Skype call. Yeah, yeah. And they were like, do you know what? We are never doing this again. They yeah. had literally, I think they had literally, they gave the security guard, there was a security guard on site because um, there was quite a lot of high value stuff there. And they said, can you give us these two dimensions? 
And he did it basically with his mobile phone and with a laser, sent them the dimensions and they were all dialed into this call and then they've got like a screen share as a separate dialer in. Someone else dialed in just with the screen share. So they were all looking at a drawing and it was really clever how they did it. And yeah. the guy was like, literally, I'm just, and it wasn't Skype, it was Zoom they were using. They achieved it. Nobody moved. Nobody went anywhere. Everybody stayed where they were. They had like five or 10 minutes of small talk, 15 minutes. They'd ironed out all the issues to do with stairs and they were done. Yeah. I guess and, the proof of the pudding comes when they get to sign their own fit. But <laughs> yeah. And that yeah, wouldn't yeah, be the definitely. first time. No, that's right. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, you think about uh, what this is. Um, I mean, I do with you, you'd be, you know, when you go out now, the air is so fresh. There's hardly oh, any traffic on the oh, ground. Yeah. And, you know, doing meetings, if this becomes a no- new normal where more people are doing more online meetings and there's less traffic on the road, that can only be really good for the environment. Oh, hugely. Massively. And I think it's, you know, everybody has environmental impact plans and assessments done. But I think this is the biggest contributor to my considerate constructors report this year is going to be, I didn't think the answer. <laughs> I made <laughs> yeah. a massive contribution to the environment. So um, thanks ever so much for coming on, Stuart. There's just a couple of questions that I just wanted to sort of cover at the end. Um, one of which was three tips for any business owners in construction right now. Um, and then the second one is just how can people reach out and contact you um, if they like what they've heard from, from our conversation this evening and perhaps want to have a chat with you about some of the stuff that you're working on. Yeah, sure. Well, so the, first, the three tips, uh, mine would be start to think about how you're going to recover, start about the back, start to think about now about how you're going to start up again, get your plans together, start planning it and how you're going to look after your supply chain. If you're a owner, a developer, talk to your, uh, talk to your funder to see if there's other ways that you can get those skills and expertise back on board. Because at the end of the day, when we're investing in anything, property, uh, money, whatever it is, ultimately we're investing in people. And it's the, you know, keep, I would say, keep your eye on the people, you know, at this particular time and how we can mobilize people, uh, how we can introduce new cash structures and that kind of thing. I would say, yeah, keep the communication lines going because it's quite easy to take your eye off the ball at the moment and then revisit your business plan, revisit your three month, six month, nine month plan. Now, you know, you, some might be saying, well, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But the thing is, things are going to happen in the future. And whilst we're going through a tough time at the moment, there are also opportunities that will arise. And I think that the, the guys that plan to re- for the recovery and to come out of this, the starter program for coming out of this, are the ones that are really going to benefit. And so I think you, you don't want to be left behind. You know, you want to, you want to start planning thinking about how you're going to take your business forward, about how you're going to modernize and how you're going to uh, uh, restructure and learn the lessons of engage with everyone at the moment in terms of ideas that come in forward in terms of how we can run our businesses much better. And I, I would think that, uh, you know, that, that, I've got a feeling that the construction industry is going to bounce back really quickly. And when it does, everyone's going to be on the starting blocks. Everybody's going to be um, competing in the initial part. They're going to be competing uh, for scarcer resources. So I think you've got to really think about how you can, uh, how you 
how you can help others. What can I do to get this project back going? How can I help the supply chain? Can I link up cash? Can I keep in touch with them? Are there ways that I can support them in what they're doing in the meantime, in terms of, you know, are they bringing uh, education, learning about their particular products and services, you know, to keep that in touch. But I do know already that there are developers out there that are starting to liquidate assets because they can see in, in the not too very near future that they're or in the near future, that they're going to be looking to start new projects. They're going to start to look for new deals. They're going to look there. I think there is an expectation that it, there'll be a good time for purchasing land, purchasing property and developing mm. land as time goes forward so people developers and investors are actually looking at uh, liquidating assets getting ready so i would say to people okay. look get ready get ready because when this starts up again it's going to bounce back really quickly mm -hmm. so i would say start planning start preparing start keep building those relationships you know this is not a time to fall out with people this is a time to to get together stick together work together and then get ready and, and get things done and develop win-win situations. Brilliant. And lastly then, how can people reach out to you and um, find you? I know you're on LinkedIn, aren't you? What's your, yeah. uh, what's the preferred method, the easiest, less friction way for somebody to get in touch if they want to talk to you? Yeah, you can, you can uh, uh, find me on LinkedIn. It's Stuart Davidson on my profile in LinkedIn. My website is uh, qsconsult.co.uk. You can reach out to me on my email, which is Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, dot Davidson at qsconsult.co.uk. And I'll be most happy to help you, help anyone. If you need some advice, etc. feel free to reach out to me. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Stuart. Thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the On The Block podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. To find out more about the work that Richard does, please visit his website, www.stonecontracts.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave a rating and review on the platform you use to enjoy his show. Thanks for listening and see you soon on The Block.